Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. We come to you each week with an in-depth conversation with the different creative Mississippian. We talk to musicians, artists, craftspeople, and people who help promote the arts in their community. And I would say today we're talking to the latter. Roger Stoley is with us. Roger, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Larry. This is uh, not your first, not your second, maybe your third or fourth time on the show. You've come with a number of different projects. Um, Roger, of course, is the proprietor of Cathead Folk Art and Delta Blues. Cathead Delta Blues and Folk Art in historic Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, A a shop for all seasons. You have music, folk art, uh, books on on culture and music. Yeah, I sort of call it Mississippi's Blues Store. So if you're into blues music or the culture surrounding it, we've got books and music and artwork and T-shirts and magazines, you name it. Uh, folks also who are uh, interested in different events around the state may know Roger for as one of the co-founders of the Juke Joint Festival, the annual uh, spring community and music festival in Clarksdale that draws people from all over. That's right. Half blues festival, half small town fair, and all about the Delta. Uh, features over 100 blues acts. Uh, the main day of the event, that Saturday, has 13 daytime stages, about 22 nighttime venues. And we have uh, blues guys from all over the state and in other places as well. Plus, monkeys riding dogs herding sheep out of Pontotoc, Mississippi. And next year's is uh, when? Do you know the I date? I believe it's Saturday, April 18th. So it's like the third Saturday or roughly? Something like that. <laughs> okay. e- Easter is the only thing that ever makes oh, us right. really move it. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, but no, next year, I believe the 18th is that Saturday. If folks do come for it, um, if, you know, they're local or regional, you might drive in just for the Saturday, Saturday night even. Uh, but if you want to come for a long weekend for Juke Joint Festival in April, come in Thursday night through Sunday night, and there will be more than you can possibly do. And you'll get to be in a real deal Juke Joint, see real deal blues guys, hear a lot of great stories, and uh, it's just a good time. Great. And and kind of another uh, prong or another iron that you have in the fire is documentation of, of blues music. And that's why you're here today to talk about your latest book, Mississippi Juke Joint Confidential. It's your second, second book, book. full right. book. Yeah. And you've also done documentary films. You've produced uh, CDs by various artists. But uh, so this is kind of bringing together a bunch of different strands in this book, right? Exactly. And some of the book comes from, you know, magazine columns that I've written on blues or uh, documentaries like We Juke Up In Here or M for Mississippi. Um, I've not being a musician myself and sort of like dancing, you know, I can prove I'm not a musician just like I can prove I'm not a dancer. Uh, this is my way to really be involved and contribute to uh, the music and the place and the people that I love so much. And I think this book, in some ways, is a culmination of a lot of those efforts. You get a little piece of a lot of different projects in one place at one time. And for me, you know, blues is a genre of music, but it's really about the culture. And, you know, putting it under one umbrella, you know, I really use the juke joint as that umbrella. You know, you look at the characters at a Red's Lounge or the old Paul Monkeys or a Blue Front Cafe, and, you know, the owners, the the customers, the musicians are all part of this just amazing community. And uh, that's hopefully what I've in some way captured in this book. Yeah, I, I would say, like, in your first book, it was more kind of 
pulling together a broader history of of the Delta and Delta music, where this one is very much focused on the people that you've been around since you've moved here in the early 2000s, right? Yeah, so I've been here 17 years now. Uh, I visited for about six and a half before that out of St. Louis, although I'm originally from Ohio. And yeah, the first book, Hidden History of Mississippi Blues, also with the History Press, was more of just a sort of straight history book, you know, chapters on what things, uh, the type of things that people ask about the most at my Cathead Blues store in Clarksdale. And then the back part had straight up interviews. And I think folks really enjoyed those interviews. So I made sure that I had a component of that as well in this book, uh, as well as just a lot of anecdotes, a lot of stories, um, in some ways, a little bit of a, uh, some biography type stuff, you know, Robert Bilbo Walker's story and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, working at the Arts Commission and a lot of these people inter- interchange sure. with us, you know, one of the most fulfilling parts of working at the Arts Commission is getting to know all these different mm-hmm. artists and become, you know, in some ways kind of part of their life, either mm-hmm. being a helper or whatever. And you can really, that really comes across in this book because you kind of, you kind of have all these d- different adventures and, you know, either on purpose or <laughs> adventures, accidentally. Adventures, misadventures. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the coolest thing about what I do. You know, um, I used to do advertising and marketing, you know, for a big corporation. Well, that certainly rewards you in certain ways, for sure. Uh, but this rewards you in all these other ways. You get to hang out with characters like a Red Payton or a Bilbo Walker or a T-Model Ford, or we were just talking about one of our uh, buddies, Gear Shifter. And, you know, they just aren't like normal people. They're they're bigger than life. Um, I was uh, recently telling somebody I got into music and blues really when Elvis died. I was 10 years old. And, you know, I would compare, you know, a Bilbo Walker or a T-Model Ford to an Elvis in terms of personality. You know, walking into a room, everything changes. Like, you know someone is there who has stories or has a talent. And for me to be able to spend time with these guys on the road, you know, touring overseas or working on film projects or putting on festivals, you know, you get to hear a lot of stories that you just wouldn't know to ask that question. You know, if you're on a six-hour layover overseas or something, stories get told that you didn't even know you would think to ask. You know, these guys who have... uh, large families like Big George Brock, 42 kids, things like that, just sort of come up and you're like, now what now? You know, tell me more about that. So it's it's been a fascinating 17 years based out of Clarksdale uh, when I've been sort of collecting a lot of these stories. You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPB. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Roger Stoley. We're talking about his new book, Mississippi Juke Joint Confidential. Um, so... In, in the first section, are, are scattered throughout the book are kind of these iconic people, and, and some of them are musicians or some are not, but it, I think uh, the one that uh, really, one of them that really stood out strongly to me is Robert Bilbo Walker, yeah. which a lot of people know as a musician who's who performed at the different festivals in the Delta for many years, but you kind of dig deeper and talk about kind of his dreams and his, these, these uh, you know, his desire to have sure. his own club. So here's a guy who made it to 80 years old when he passed. I think it's going to be three years ago, November. And he lived, you know, 120 years in that 80 years, you know, compared to most of us. He had a lot of hopes and dreams. He was very much an entrepreneur his whole life. Uh, But he came from just nothing. And people talk about being self-made people, self-made men. And this guy really was. You know, when he was a kid, he would do things to earn extra money. His father, who was an alcoholic, would take that money uh, oftentimes. uh, But he sort of learned to work harder and be creative to try to find ways to sort of pull himself out of the situation he was in. Uh, his family, uh, they grew up as sharecroppers just outside of Clarksdale, Mississippi, kind of close to Alligator, Mississippi. And uh, he was just that personality from the get-go. He also 
at least later in life, said he always wanted to kind of be somebody. He wanted to be that guy that walks into a room and people are like, well, who's he? So, you know, he would wear these amazing, or you might say in some cases, kind of crazy suits, you know, zoot suit type uh, outfits. Uh, he had this really incredible puffy wig that he wore that was clearly a wig, uh, but it was very distinct. I've never seen another wig like it. Uh, and yet he owned multiples of it. So apparently he bought all the ones on the market. That's all I could really figure out. Uh, but he had, among other dreams, particularly later in life, this dream to own his own juke joint. And he didn't want just your average hole-in-the-wall kind of thing. He wanted Wonderlight City. And Wonderlight City would be just that. It would be like this compound, really. You'd come out, it'd be like this little, in his mind, a little city with all these lights, and you could have all these different activities out there, and people could camp even. So he dug ponds so he could have fishing ponds. He cut down trees and cleared land and got gravel so he could have this parking lot situation. Uh, he wanted to build an outdoor stage. So to make it a little easier, he built it between trees, like a treehouse. Unfortunately, those trees were still growing, so it didn't exactly, you know, uh, you couldn't put a level on it, let's just say. Uh, but the main sort of crux of his property out there, which I should say was in the middle of nowhere, but only 18 minutes by car from downtown Clarksdale. Now, whether you could find it was a whole other deal. Uh, but he had moved uh, an army barracks, an old Quonset hut, in pieces using a cotton trailer out to this family land that had somehow survived the eons in his family. And he put it back together as a uh, Quonset hut, and then he just started trying to improve it. You know, he sort of lined the inside with plywood. Um, he reinvented how plumbing worked or honestly didn't necessarily work because there was no water out there and no electricity. Uh, so he, like, created the ultimate juke joint bathroom, which had beautiful new toilet. You know, it was, it was brand new. But it, you know, would flush like once or twice and then didn't seem to want to flush anymore. And, of course, I'm pretty curious about things. So I walked around back of the Quonset hut and found that he'd sort of created this bucket system where you dump in a bucket of water into this thing, this sort of hopper out back, and it would give you a couple flushes, apparently. And I'm like, well, where is it going? Because there's no sewer out here. So, of course, I followed a little seam in the dirt, and uh, it just emptied into an open pit because, you know, that's what you do in the country, I guess. So, you know, he would do things like that to make it happen and make it work. Um, he wanted to hire a guy to come out and do concrete, a concrete floor inside the juke joint, Wonderlight City, as well as a sidewalk lead, leading up to it, sort of connecting the parking lot. But it was too much money. So he's like, well, I'll just do it myself. So he went and bought a concrete mixer, having never mixed concrete before, and attempted it. His wife was so upset with the results that he had to tear the floor back out and redo it because apparently you couldn't even walk over it. It was so bumpy and wavy. Uh, but in the end, it was actually pretty good. You know, the sidewalk was not going to last through time, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, again, the fact that this guy would just sort of do things that you just didn't think were possible with almost no no means. Um, so did Wonder, Wonderlight City did open before his death, so, right? He did. Yeah, seven years of working on it and disasters a couple times involving flooding, involving getting burglarized out there, things like that. But it did open in June three Junes ago, I guess, uh, for about three weeks. And then unfortunately, he was 80 years old. He got diagnosed with uh, cancer and it just, it had gone too far. He sort of knew he had something wrong, but didn't get it checked in time. So unfortunately, it was only open about three weeks. But uh, I'll tell you something that's super cool on the internet. People can go to greatbigstory.com. These uh, documentarians came and documented the grand opening weekend. It's like a three-minute documentary, but it really captures his dream. It's beautiful. I think I mentioned it in the book as well. 
So you got to, he performed as well out there? And, yeah, so he yeah. performed for basically the three weekends. Now, you know, I'll just be honest, and I and he knew, I knew this, you know, he, he was known to sort of, you know, say, I'm playing tonight and all this, and then he'd kind of look in there, and if there weren't people, he sort of just disappeared, you know, so yeah. at least one of those nights he probably didn't actually perform, but uh, but yeah, he, for three weeks, had it open, and I mean, it was just Super cool, ridiculously cool. You know the crazy lights inside. Everything's run off one of generator. Christ- it was full of Christmas lights, yeah, right? All that kinds was of lights. Of thing. Yeah. yeah, lights inside, and then outside, he had all these lights. Now the challenge was that he had dug these two ponds, which are supposed to be fishing ponds, but they really were just mosquito ponds. Oh, no. So then you turn <laughs> all these lights on, and you can imagine what happens. So the very first night he was open, it was. I mean, I brought my own bug spray, fortunately. Yeah. Uh, but it was kind of a disaster. So by the next night, he had built something like a screened-in porch situation to have a double door to try to keep some of it out. Um, also had a bit of a snake issue out there, but uh, it was less so than the mosquitoes. All right. Well, it was true, uh, true adventure out of yes. Wonderlight City. It was like a big piece of folk art with real deal blues. Yeah. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Roger Stoley from Clarksdale, and he's got a brand new book out called Mississippi Juke Joint Confidential, House Parties, Hustlers, and the Blues Life. Um, one interesting uh, person that's mentioned who, who has a kind of a section in the book is not a musician, is not a promoter, but was a very uh, – uh, not a crucial, but an, an inter- interesting person within Clarksdale, which was – uh, Rat Ratliff yeah. of the Riverside Hotel, um, and the Riverside Hotel and its its long history in Clarksdale. Yeah, so the Riverside Hotel, folks will drive by it and be like, "Well, it's too bad it's not open." It's like, no, it is open. It is never closed. It's the most blues historic hotel in the world. Uh, Mrs. Hill, uh, Frank Ratliff, Rat's mother, opened it in 1944. But the history goes back even further in blues since in 1937. That's where the great blues, classic blues singer Bessie Smith actually expired, where she died when it was G.T. Thomas Afro-American Hospital. <clears throat> and Frank Ratliff basically had kept the, uh, I want to call it a juke joint, kept the hotel going um, after his mother passed away and could basically tell you all the stories and, and, and such. And it, it figures into blues. It figures into uh, early rock and roll, you know, Ike Turner lived there for a couple years. Of course, he's from Clarksdale anyway, uh, but when he was basically grown enough to move out of his mother's home, that's where he first moved. And uh, according to Frank Ratliff, the Kings of Rhythm, uh, recording the first rock and roll song under Jackie Brenston's name, uh, Rocket 88, uh, actually rehearsed there, rehearsed the song, and he always claimed that they cut a demo, although we'll never know that, um, at the hotel. But the history was just super thick, uh, blues-wise there. So I think I called the chapter in the book, you know, Juke Joint Hotel, question mark, um, because the uh, the richness of the history really from almost day one. I also really like the fact that uh, Rat's mother was, like we were just talking about with uh, Robert Bilbo Walker and some of these juke joint owners, very much an entrepreneur um, working within a system where it was a challenge, really, for an African-American woman at that time to be an entrepreneur like that. And she owned multiple businesses, uh, the Riverside being the most famous and long-lasting. And she basically took an old hotel or old uh, hospital, excuse me, that had been closed down, and had someone add rooms onto it to turn it into this hotel, and hosted everyone you can imagine—just blues and gospel and civil rights workers, um, even uh, 
John John Kennedy Jr. at one point was there as a blues fan, uh, spent a weekend. And it was the only hotel ever in the Green Book in Clarksdale, Mississippi. So that's part of the reason why they got the traveling performers, I think, coming through there. Which was the famous um, kind of guide for African-Americans traveling in the South. That, exactly, where that, it was that, sort of safe or where you're welcome to stay right. or eat. And uh, of the editions I was able to look at online, there's a, pretty much they have them all now as PDFs. Uh, New York Public Library, I think. Uh, you can look at them, and it's the only one I could, I could find that was ever listed. And the Riverside is also, because it is literally on the Riverside, <laughs> yes, that's the other is. that's very distinctive about it. Mm-hmm. It's built kind of on pillars. It's up on the, right on the banks of the Sunflower River. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because I assumed the whole building had been the hospital. And Rat said, oh, no, my, you know, my mother had it added on to. When, when uh, she took possession of the building, she hired a guy and she drew it out herself what she wanted. And so most of the building was actually added 1944 or shortly thereafter. It kind of makes you wonder what's holding that up sometimes, I'll admit. Uh, but, yeah, it goes out towards the river. And uh, Big George Brock, one of the bluesmen who who stayed there back in the day, uh, he was staying in Clarksdale. He's from Clarksdale but lives in St. Louis now. He was staying in Clarksdale for a festival he was playing. And I said, well, why don't you stay at the riverside? And he's like, oh, I used to stay there. I'm like, well, you know, rat and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, no. No, I came out of my room one time and there was a snake coming down the hall. And I said, I'm never staying there again. <laughs> and, you know, I took that at... I'm thinking this happened last week or something, you know. So then a few months later, I thought about it. I'm like, I wonder when that happened. So the next time I talked to him, I said, well, when did that happen? Well, that was like in the 50s. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, right. I, I think probably it's okay now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the history is just so, so thick at places like that. Also, um, you know, Red's Lounge just up the street. So, you know, Rat used to just always send his guests right up the street, and he would come check on them, which I thought was always really sweet. And he became as much a celebrity as the blues players, really. He'd walk in to Reds, and people would sort of celebrate him, which was cool. Now, Red Payton, of course, the juke joint owner of Reds Lounge, is, is, has his own chapter, as he as, as he should. <laughs> and any uh, Roger Stoley production, he's been kind of a central uh, character in your in your kind of promotion mm-hmm. of, of Clarksdale. But tell us a little bit about what do you, what's the history of that building and, and, and him getting started there? Yeah, well, the building's pretty fascinating because it was Levine's Music Center back in the day. And basically, that's where uh, Ike Turner and other musicians, Big George, would buy their instruments, guitars, harmonicas, all that. And then the general public would buy the latest hits, the records, you know, 78s or 45s. And I know one of the rumors I had heard early on uh, visiting Clarksdale was that when they closed, they just threw all the unsold record stock into the river. But, of course, we'll never know if that's true. Um, But it's amazing that it had that history. You know, Rat told me the story of his mother having good credit and sent Ike down to get whatever the instrument was he needed um, at the time on her credit. Just basically go in and say, it's on her credit. I need this. You know, and Big George, when we filmed him for We Juke Up In Here, I was just trying to give him a leading question so he would just establish that he had played there before. But he took it as what was the first time he'd ever been there. So he goes, oh, I used to come back here in the 50s and buy harmonicas. And I'm like, or no, he didn't even say the harmonica part. So I had to like think about it. I'm like, oh, you came to Levine's, you know, and bought your harmonicas. So the history is real rich with the blues. Um, <clears throat> when I moved to Clarksdale 17 years ago, Reds had existed for a number of years. Um, it's up for debate how many years he's really been in there. Uh, but he was renting it. And within a year or two of moving to Clarksdale, I believe, is when he bought it. So he actually owns the structure. But before that building on Sunflower Avenue in downtown Clarksdale, he had one around the corner called the Tin Top. 
it was a smaller juke joint. Apparently, all kinds of crazy things went on over there. It was even uh, less code enforced, let's just say. Uh, but that building is totally gone. The church uh, at some point tore it down and put new buildings there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but concurrently with the the one he's running these days, he had another one in another neighboring county that was the late night place. That was Red Wine, and actually had that name when he got it. Red Wine. It's like a it's like a metal pole barn kind of situation out in the country. And uh, I said, well, you know, what happened to that? You know, why'd you stop running that? Well, my man, Jack Harris, got out of office. In other words, oh, he had paid off the sheriff. protection. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. And basically the new guy came in and was like, nope, you got to close it, you know, whatever. Yeah. Midnight or one. He's like, well, I can't do that. So he just closed it all up. Uh, but when I first moved to Clarksdale, it took two weeks before I saw an actual live act at Red's. Um, it had become just really sporadic. It was still fantastic when he had live music, but it was not like you could bank on it. And my whole message when I moved to Clarksdale was that, you know, we need to organize and then promote from within. So the first thing we had to do was pull together something reliable we could promote so that former tourists like me could, you know, bank on it and book a flight or book a hotel room and, you know, try to as well pull the two-hour visitor that we were getting mostly at the time who would see the Delta Blues Museum, Ground Zero was new, Cathead was even newer. And that was about all there was to do, you know, for a day visit. You can go out and see where Muddy Waters grew up. Um, and then you'd be on the road again. So we're like, well, if we're the town with the music at night, then we get the overnight visitor. And then by extension, we'll need more hotel rooms because the inventory was pretty bad back then in Clarksdale. And then we'll need more restaurants, et cetera. And that's really what's been going on. So now we have, I mean, all kinds of new hotel rooms and apartments, those kind of things. We have new restaurants. And Red now has live blues every single Wednesday, Thursday, uh, well, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and some Thursdays. And then during a festival weekend, he'll run even more days. And, you know, to have him, you know, be able to benefit from our, what I would call a revitalization. Although when I say that in Clarksdale, we do it kind of rustically. So it's not like we're talking shiny and new. Uh, but he's been able to benefit from that and then book more music, which means more musicians get to work. Um, so that's, you know, it's just been a win-win. And he's been a, you know, he's been kind of a, I won't say a father figure, uh, maybe like a crazy <laughs> uncle figure yeah. to me. You know, um, he's met a lot, a lot in my world for sure. We're both entrepreneurs, so I'm sure yes, you, there exactly. is some entrepreneurial uh, hand downs. I'm sure that you can see yes, how he runs. Now there's things. two of us who don't know what we're doing. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Reds is pretty interesting because you look at some of the internal, fo- the inside photos, interior photos, um, even in the book, and you'll notice you know, like the, the ceiling looks kind of funny, and you're like, well, man, I think that's plastic. Um, he has through time, not right now, but he has through time had some real water issues with the roof. Um, so for at least a year, maybe two years, he was constantly trying different strategies. First to fix the top of the roof, then to just go and hang plastic inside under, you know, the ceiling. And uh, it led to many uh, kind of, uh, well, kind of frankly hilarious and ridiculous evenings where like suddenly the water that had built up let go on the drum, you know, the drum set. Or one night, uh, the late Robert Belfour, who I just loved, uh, was playing his, you know, real grooving, long hill country blues songs. Everybody's in the groove. And out the corner of my eye, I caught movement kind of up and to my left. So I look up and there's Red in his sunglasses, which he wears even at night, on a ladder holding a wet dry vac trying to vacuum out the ceiling. And I'm like, this couldn't happen anywhere else. No. Um, Earlier, just a little bit ago, you played Wesley Junebug Jefferson, uh, one of his songs. And uh, I asked him once, well, what's the difference between like, you know, a big new blues club and like a little old juke joint? And he said, well, clubs have 
juke joints don't have as many rules as clubs do. You know, and that's kind of what that's about. The code enforcement, fortunately, for juke joint culture has been rather lax. So that we're able to have these environments that are still very much like the old house parties of the old days. Yeah. I think when I went to Red's, I don't know, early 2000s, John Rusky was doing something there. And, oh. and that night, the building next door caught on fire. <laughs> And I just remember the door guy being like, it's cool. You don't have to leave. You know, like, we're going to have another set in a minute. And there's, you see the firemen going uh, back and forth. It's like, no, maybe Anywhere we else they would evacuate. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. You don't have to leave. You don't have to leave. They got, they got it under control. So anyway, well, let's, uh, let's listen to some more music. Um, and coming up is one of the, one of the people that's quoted in kind of the musician chapters, mm-hmm. who's, who's Terry Harmonica Bean, not a native of the Delta, but from Northeast Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about him before we uh, hear his song. So first off, Terry, Terry Bean is the hardest working bluesman I currently know. He will play a place like Red's for over four hours. He'll tell a couple stories, but he'll never leave the bandstand, never take a break. Uh, he's also very opinionated. Sometimes that is hilarious, his, his thoughts and his opinions about things. Uh, but he's interesting because he's, relatively speaking, not that old, maybe late 50s. Uh, but he grew up in this vacuum of Pontotoc, Mississippi, with a whole bunch of older brothers. And his dad was a blues lover, so he started playing harmonica. His dad would sort of trot him into juke joints, show off his son, and then throw him back out in the car with the brothers who'd beat him up for getting the attention. Um, so he grew up in all of that without outside influences. And then, curiously enough, he really ended up being this great baseball player you know, in school. And so he was uh, on his way to the major leagues. He could pitch, uh, he says, 95 with both arms. He, he could throw with both arms. And uh, was in a motorcycle accident. And uh, it all ended it all for him and really put him back into the blues in a more serious way. So for about 25 years, he worked in a factory, uh, furniture factory in Pontotoc. And then finally uh, retired from that. And he's doing blues full time all over the world now. And and the one thing he does mention in the book that uh, in one of his quote ses- sections was about kind of his apprenticeship with the late T-Model 4, which <laughs> yes. is such an interesting, those two so opinionated working together. Oh, my know? Lord. So T-Model, who, you know, what a bluesman. If you don't know who it is, Google him. Uh, he basically hired Terry to play with him. And Terry's like, this is the first guy who ever gave me a real chance to play professionally, play blues. But then you ask, well, what happened? You know, because they played together for, I don't know, a year or two. He said, well, I just I had to get out of the way because I was, I was always taking all the punches. You know, T-Models get these fights started by staring at the women and saying things on the mic. And then he'd try to break it up and he'd take the punches. Or one night they were out front of the club and they were putting away equipment. And T-Models standing there counting his money. And some guy runs by and grabs it and takes off, runs right past Terry. Well, Terry doesn't stop him. So then T-Models like thinks he's in on it. And he's like, well, I'm not getting killed over this. You shouldn't have had the money out, you know. Uh, so, you know, he had a... A real apprenticeship, I guess. For sure. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for the final segment on the Arts Hour, and we're talking with Roger Stoley about his new book, Mississippi Juke Joint Confidential, House Parties, Hustlers, and the Blues Life. Um, Throughout the... Oh, and let's not forget, before I get too far, is um, your collaborator on this book. Yes, the photographer, yes. So Lou Bope is the photographer who makes me look good and always does. The Hidden History of Mississippi Blues as well as Juke Joint Confidential, he did all of the photos. So I cannot claim those, but they are beautiful. And um, really, I would say you want this book just because of the photos. And, hey, I wrote some words. Uh, but Lou is a commercial photographer, very successful, based out of St. Louis, does a lot of work in New York. Uh, but he is a music lover and a blues lover. 
And for a few years now, he's been coming down and really documenting things. Uh, he's worked with us uh, for We Juke Up In Here, the documentary, as well as Moonshine and Mojo Hands, which that is a free documentary series you can watch online at moonshineandmojohands.com. And he was one of the cameramen on that. Um, he's just a great guy who's willing to oftentimes you know, work under uh, conditions that are less than ideal <laughs> to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. And he's just always professional, always working, always looking for that great shot. And he, I don't know, somehow he makes people feel comfortable because when you see the photos, it doesn't seem like there's a professional photographer in the room. And it's really uh, very candid. Yeah, he does. He does some really nice kind of set ones, but also just capturing the moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're throughout the book and a nice section of color photos in the middle. So one of the other one of the other kind of features of this book is kind of the um, chapters that kind of kind of hit on themes and, and you have different artists who you've worked with over mm-hmm. the years talk about them. So I was hoping we I'm just going to throw out a few names. You could tell us a oh, little sure. about yeah. some of the kind of I mean, a lot of people know about. Terry Bean and Leo Welch, people that have toured around mm-hmm. a lot, but there's also folks that just kind of stay have stayed more in the Delta. And one that I, I think about who I saw early on when I moved to uh, moved to Mississippi was Razorblade. Yeah, so Josh Razorblade Stewart of Clarksdale uh, was really an institution in Clarksdale. And uh, he used to, when he was performing, he'd always go, uh-huh, you know, in the middle of songs. He's like, now don't take that back with you to the tourist. You know, don't mine. steal. That's mine. That's mine, yeah. But I guess I can take it now because sadly he uh, he passed away uh, I think it's about a year and a half ago now. But he was just at every Red show, every Ground Zero show, and Miss Sarah had Sarah's kitchen. He was there, whether he was performing or not. And, of course, he'd get up and do his signature numbers. And he actually wrote some really great songs. Now, he, he did a lot of, you know, down-home blues, a lot of traditional covers. Uh, but he wrote some really kind of personal songs that he'd perform sometimes, uh, one of which is on the soundtrack to Last of the Mississippi Jukes, actually. It's not in the movie, but it's on the soundtrack. If you happen to have that at home somewhere, check it out. And uh, so Ebony Magazine one time contacted me. It was about 15 years ago and wanted to do a thing on blues and the Delta and Clarksdale and wanted to interview some musicians. And it's always a challenge talking to some of the musicians because they want to be paid, and you have to explain this is publicity in this case. It isn't necessarily a paid you know, gig or conversation. Uh, so, But Razorblade was always willing to do that because he, he loved it, just loved talking to people. So he did it. Bilbo Walker did it as well, begrudgingly. And uh, when it came out, I had to go buy a couple copies for them. So I give one to Razorblade. He is super thrilled to be in Ebony Magazine. Photo, yeah. interview, super cool. Walks around for three months. Next time I see him, it is a tattered issue. He had shown it to every tourist who came through Clarksdale. Bilbo Walker, on the other hand, had been out of town. He comes in you know, my store, and I'm like, hey, I got something for you. And I handed it to him. He looks at it, and he says, everybody's making money off of me except me. And I handed it back to me. And I was like, okay. Fine. Yeah. But uh, but Razorblade was always just thrilled to be involved with things and be representing blues. Um, but yeah, sadly, he's no longer with us. By the way, he was not a dangerous man. He would he dressed sharp as a razor, and that's why he was uh, called Razorblade. Okay. Did he? Now he was primarily a singer. Did he play an instrument? So he played saxophone, but it wasn't his saxophone. So then there was a disagreement, and then he no longer played saxophone. Okay. So, yeah. So mainly he sang, but he had a really cool voice. He also. Um, wasn't a teacher per se, but he was a mentor to a lot of the younger musicians and worked with guys like Mr. Johnny and, and uh, John Rusky uh, involved with the Delta Blues Education Fund. Another distinctive voice who I think has been underappreciated is Bill Abel. So 
I was thinking about this earlier, actually, when we talked about Lou Bope, the photographer. Bill Abel, and we'll talk about him as a musician, uh, but he's an amazing uh, recording engineer as well. And we definitely put him in situations where most folks would have just gotten their car and left or not answered our phone call the next time, uh, you know, recording at these little juke joints and things. Uh, but he was just amazing. Um, a lot of the stuff that's on the two CD set that you're playing today, Mistakes Were Made, um, maybe even all of that, uh, Bill was the recording engineer on. And for him to have gotten these studio-quality field recordings under some of the conditions we put him under, you know, a rainy house party, for example, things like that, where he could have been electrocuted, quite frankly, um, just amazing. On top of that, he is an artist, a painter, and a potter, uh, but most folks know him, and, and rightfully so, as a blues musician. And I love the fact that he sort of started out, at least as he originally told me, in Belzona, Mississippi, as a young man who, uh, you know, like any young man, you're gonna, you want to learn to play some guitar to impress the ladies, and, you know, his friends were playing rock music, so you kind of start out doing that. Uh, but then he started listening to Mississippi Public Broadcasting and the Highway 61 show, which I think was probably Bill Ferris at the time, maybe. Right. And uh, he just, he's like, well dang, I didn't know that was all from here. You know, it like sort of stunned him that all this music is from here. So he started really trying to play some blues. And one day he was playing on the street, trying to get his act together across from a liquor store. Sees a guy, a skinny guy go in, guy comes out, sort of stops, you know, deer in the headlights and looks across the street at Bill. And Bill's like, oh, I don't know if this is going to end well, you know. So the guy marches across. Well, it turns out it ended up being Paul Wine Jones, who was probably his first real blues mentor, a guy who recorded for Fat Possum Records. Uh, so then he started either through Paul or just on his own, started looking for other blues musicians. Monroe Jones, a really unknown guy in many ways, uh, was also a mentor to him. They played together. And Cadillac John Nolden, who's now 92 years old, still going strong out of Renova, Mississippi, um, still plays with Bill when, when, you know, when they get a gig together. So Bill on his own is fantastic. And, you know, when you see how he's supported the older blues musician through time, um, you know, it's really helped the whole scene. You know, and for a while there, especially when we still had more of the older guys, Bill was kind of a go-to guy if I needed somebody to help back up or somebody yeah. to help pull a band he could together. Tastefully back somebody exactly. up and not get in their way and let them yeah. be the be the star. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, uh, you know, another one who I think is just a great talent that not enough people know about is John Horton from Greenville, Mississippi. Yes. So I keep trying to get, I'm just going to say this, I keep trying to get Red to book him like as a regular act, like have John Horton be one of your acts. It's perfect. Yeah. Uh, but Red did book him for his Red's Old Timers Blues Festival, which I'll just give a little plug for that. That is now every the, sat, the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend each year, uh, free outdoor festival. And he had John play that this year. Uh, but John, when I first was visiting Mississippi back in the mid to late 90s, was one of the guys I would see down on uh, Nelson Street at the uh, at Perry's Flowing Fountain yeah. or uh, at the old uh, Walnut Street Blues Bar um, or actually the bait shop at the time. You could buy fishing bait or you could see blues and get a beer. Yeah. Um, same building, very yeah. practical. Uh, but he would be there, you know, and you'd see him and Willie Foster and T-Model. It was kind of like they were all hanging out together. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed John Horton for Blues, it was Blues Review Magazine at the time. And that's where uh, the interview stuff, uh, the blurbs I have in, in the new book are from. And some of the way he would tell stories are just hilarious, you know. And he was the relatively younger guy hanging out with Willie Foster and T-Model Ford and Sam Carr and those guys. Uh, but one of the stories that's early on in the, in, the, in the quotes there, he's talking about how they're heading out to some gig and Willie Foster is like, 
basically saying, I feel like throwing some fists tonight and getting in a fight and da da da. And, and T model pulls a pistol out and he's like, Well, I hope it's not with me. You know, <laughs> this whole thing almost just breaks out in the car for no reason. Uh, but John is a real, uh, in his own way, a documentarian. If you ask him about things, he has some incredible juke joint stories that are firsthand. But a, a, and he's a, a great bluesman, a I very say. talented guitarist, <laughs> a, a yes. great band leader, mm -hmm. and and like Bill Abel, like really, really yeah. uh, uh, skilled at playing with other musicians yeah. and older and knowing the older styles, but mm -hmm. not being, but being contemporary at the same time. So he's just, and uh, I know. Um, a quote that I saw from a thing that Scott Beretta did with him is, you know, one of the reasons he doesn't travel is he's a he's a dozer operator. Yeah. And he says, I think his quote was like, I'm a I'm a pretty good guitar player, but I'm a great dozer operator. <laughs> so he's always working. Yeah. He's always working. So he he's reluctant to, you know, get out on the road because he's giving up work. But yeah, man, what a talent. It's uh it's unfortunate he's not better known. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to get him more in Clarksdale for sure. You're listening to the Arts Hour, and today we're talking with Roger Stoley about his new book, Mississippi Juke Joint Confidential. Um, and so, and as you mentioned earlier, Roger, you're kind of involved in all different sorts of things happening in terms of blues and culture in Clarksdale in the Northern Delta. Um, there's always things happen, seem to be happening in terms of new, new, new stores, new mm -hmm. developments <clears throat> around Clarksdale. Tell us some of the latest. Yeah, so. Just to back up slightly, you know, when I moved there 17 years ago, I moved with a mission. It is true. I opened Cathead, my blues store, and then started doing these different things. But they're all part of the mission, which is to help organize and promote the blues from within. Because my theory was, and I'm not saying I made the, you know, I'm the first one to think of this, but basically the first puzzle piece on our otherwise empty table at that time, particularly downtown, particularly with the music scene, the first puzzle piece was blues. If we have that... Then we get the overnight visitor, and then you need infrastructure, you know, hotels and restaurants, et cetera, that come along with that. And you start building out this puzzle. Uh, when I was 17 years or 18 years, let's say, with Ground Zero being, uh, I think, 18 years old, um, into downtown revitalization at this point based around blues music, and we have at least 35 overnight apartments downtown that didn't exist 17 years ago, uh, I think eight restaurants downtown that didn't exist uh, 17 years ago. We have a new 20-room hotel, Traveler's Hotel, opened up this year downtown. We have a new, really cool uh, hostel that opened up about three weeks ago in the old Medidi building. Um, and Shack Up Inn, if people are familiar with that, out at the old Hobson Plantation, 17 years ago they had six shacks. Now they can sleep 150 people out there. It is like a town. I mean, I have an employee that's actually working right now while I'm on the radio, and uh, he... Uh, came from Pacifica, California, and he just built five out there himself because he bought some land adjacent to Shack Up. So it really is just, it, it keeps growing like that. But don't let that scare you from coming because it's all being done very artistically, um, very kind of naturally, organically. It just, it feels right. And that's what I love about it is that we, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money living on a Clarksdale, Mississippi. You're just not. You can make a living though. And I think uh, for that reason, we attract people with passion, you know, people who really want to be there and want to be part of the scene. They may be musicians or artists or entrepreneurs. Uh, we have folks who've just plain retired there. Uh, and we have some people who own property and just can't be there all the time. But it's it's just a really unique situation we have going on. We have, um, you know, 17 years ago, the tourism office was very small and it was not in town, frankly. Our Chamber of Commerce, the same thing, was not in town. They're both downtown now and we have two great heads. Bubba O'Keefe, who I, uh, he and I co-founded Juke Joint Festival together, among other things, uh, is now our tourism director uh, as of January 1st of 2019. 
And he gets it because he was like the Clarksdale ambassador when I was visiting. Like he would just try to hook you up with people and places and things uh, when we didn't really have as many as we do now. So to have him in that role as tourism director in Clarksdale, Mississippi is fantastic. Um, and then John Levingston is our new chamber guy, and he's actually bringing in some industry, uh, which I still believe is part of that puzzle. Like, I don't think that could have happened like it is happening today if we had not said, this is what we're going to stand on. We're going to be the blues town in the Delta. Um, so I, I really feel like the music um, and the culture really are helping us to build something that hopefully is helping the music and the culture. Yeah, because the kind of the old-timey development people would say, you know, what does this have to do right. with with factories or whatever? Mm -hmm. But, you know, those factories come with families and people that want yeah. want things to do. So, you know, having something to offer like that, I'm sure, is can, can be a, a help in those things. Well, and it helps to have some, you know, when they're trying to get a company to come or whatever, it helps to be able to give some kind of positive media. Uh, you know, give them something that's been in the New York Times about Clarksdale, things like that. It just, even if it's just about the music, it still puts your town on the map. And then when they come visit, to be able to take them out at night and show them music, and they're sitting there, and you've got all these voices from France and Brazil and wherever right around you, because we get all these international tourists. Uh, so it all kind of works together. I feel like it's it's a very special place, but we're at a, a particularly special moment in time. And my only regret, and it's not really regret, it's just unfortunate, is that. Some of the older musicians just, you know, couldn't live long enough to really benefit from the things we're building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good segue because you wanted to talk about the uh, Mississippi Blues Foundation's Benevolence Fund, which yes. is, a, is a really uh, talking about, you know, uh, musicians in need, older musicians who are having troubles of health or other, otherwise. Sure. So, of course, Mississippi has the amazing Mississippi Blues Trail marker system of over 200 markers. Uh, but part of that, if you go to msbluestrail.org, uh, part of that is also a benevolent fund. And this fund helps uh, oftentimes sick or, um, you know, blues musicians in need. It could be dentures. It could be medications. Um, it could be some kind of hospital bill. Um, sadly, in many cases, it's funeral expenses. Uh, but T-Model Ford, Bilbo Walker, um, a lot of the musicians who are, frankly, in this book, uh, Mississippi Juke Joint Confidential, have benefited from this foundation. Uh, Dr. Edgar Smith is uh, the guy that really keeps it together and raises the money. And he is always looking for, whether it's $5 or $5,000, uh, to be able to help out older, typically older and ailing musicians. And uh, again, you can go to msbluestrail.org. Uh, sometimes you don't know where your money goes, but I know where it goes here because I've seen it help. Right. Thanks so much for coming in. For people that are interested in hearing more about all the stuff that you do, what's what's your what's the best ways for them to reach you? Sure. So you can go to cathead.biz, cathead.biz on the internet, or look up Roger Stoley on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Or better yet, come to 252 Delta Avenue in downtown Clarksdale and visit my Cathead store. And I will tell you stories. I will tell you where the music is at night, whatever you want to hear. Excellent. Thanks, Roger. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Larry. I appreciate it. For those of you tuning in late, you'd like to listen back or share the show with a friend, you can go to MPB's website, mpbonline.org. They post all our past shows. There's streaming files, or you can go online and uh, find us as a podcast. Until next time, we'll be seeing you around.